we come to hear God speak to us through His Word, let us go to Him in prayer. O Lord, our great God and King, we come and we do indeed praise You and thank You for all that You are and all that You've done for us. And O Lord, as we gather together to hear You speak through Your Word, we pray that You would be pleased yet again to reveal to us Your glory, to show us the Lord Jesus Christ, to encourage our hearts with the Gospel. We pray that You would do that now by the power of Your Spirit. In the strong name of Christ the King. Amen. As we come to the Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me to our passage in Matthew 18. You can find that in your ESV Bible or in your bulletin insert. We continue in our Lenten series this morning asking the question, what does the Lord require of you? What does God want us to do or to be like in order to please Him? The disciples clearly are wrestling with this question in the context of our passage. They've just witnessed Jesus cast out a demon and then teach upon what it means to be the faithful Son of Man. But they immediately begin to twist and confuse the posture of our Lord. Instead of recognizing His unswerving desire to come and to serve, they begin to squabble over who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's in these verses immediately preceding our text that we find Jesus' famous teaching that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We see then right from the outset of our passage that being a follower of God, doing what the Lord would require, is entirely wrapped up in this idea of what it means to be a child. Or to be and act as one who is dependent upon God for everything. What's more than this, as we'll see, we're also to be a people who recognize that we need God at every turn. To understand where and how we are fallen people. But finally, as God's children, we take comfort. We take comfort in knowing that He is our Heavenly Father and that He has turned His providing love for us in Jesus Christ. And nothing will ever change that. So let us turn our attention to the Word of God as we read together, beginning at verse 7 of Matthew chapter 18. Let us read God's Word. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. As we look through our Lenten sermon series and I saw the passage that Barry gave me, I said, oh boy! Such an easy passage to talk about. And then as I realized we were celebrating the sacrament of baptism earlier at the 9 o'clock service, I thought, man, what a way to link to baptism than talking about cutting off a hand or a foot. Obviously, I'm being a bit cheeky here. 
But I actually do think that this passage relates well to the sacrament of baptism. And even though we haven't seen that sacrament, I'll call on you to think about your baptism. Now, if you were like me, baptized as an infant in a Presbyterian church, you may not remember it. But I'm sure that you've seen enough baptisms in your life to think about what it is we're proclaiming to be true in baptism. But before we get there, I think one of the main reasons why I love children, why I'm fascinated by children, is because of their inherent lack of pretense. Unlike the rest of the world, you know, kids have not learned to erect that facade of falsehood. Kids aren't allowed, for instance, and for good reason, I might add, to have those coveted social media accounts. Those meticulously curated profiles in which we seek to put before the world that perfect version of ourselves. Interestingly, you may know that the older use of that word curate, it actually denotes the aid of a vicar or a priest. That person, as we see from the meaning in Latin, is to care for the things of the priest. They're charged with keeping that person organized, with, with maintaining his esteem before the parish as the model parishioner. Because after all, he's the, the representative or mediator between God and His people. He obviously needed to be above reproach then. And isn't that the mentality that we often take with our public persona. That we must be completely polished in coming to church on a Sunday morning lest people see our true selves. But you know, I love kids because they just don't operate by the same rules. Kids are instinctively selfish due to our inherent sinful nature. You know, taking away from them that toy that they just will not share it won't make them any less selfish, just like taking away one beer from an alcoholic will make them any less addicted in that sin. Children defy our society's logic that we're all just good people deep down. Yes, they're adorable. Yes, they seem innocent and they coo at baptism. Though often they cry and wail. But they're not innocent. Psalm 14 says this so abundantly clearly. There's none who does good. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That includes our precious children. Psalm 53 picks up this same language. The Apostle Paul cites these passages in Romans 3. The Bible's warrant is so clear that we are all dead in our sin. What does Jesus mean then when He commands His disciples to be like little children? Well, as we've established, He does not mean that we're to make ourselves innocent like children because they themselves are not innocent. If you don't believe me, just tell a child no and see the kind of response that you get. No, we're not to boast in our innocence because that would be an impossibility. Verse 4, before our passage gives us, I think, the proper understanding, we are to humble ourselves like children. We're to recognize that we're utterly dependent upon God for everything, just as a child depends upon his or her parents. 
But further than this, we're dependent on God, not just for sustenance, but also to teach us and to show us who we really are and what we're like deep down. God in His goodness demonstrates to us through His Word, through His counsel, through the church, that we are sinful people and that He is holy and just. It's His Word and His revelation that we are to trust, not our own counsel. You think of that famous proverb from Proverbs 3. This is why Jesus so vehemently opposes those who would tempt little children or those, as we would see in the context of those verses, who would tempt disciples or followers of Christ. Notice what He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I think verse 6 then, the reason why I'm talking about those verses preceding our text is because they link the passage before it to our text. They're intimately related. Jesus is clearly rebuking those who would cause believers to doubt Him or His Word and to tempt them thereby to sin. Notice first that Jesus in the beginning of our passage assumes that this life will be laden with temptation. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. Beloved, how the world and we need to hear again and anew this truth. This age is a fallen age. It's broken and twisted. It does not work for us. It works against us. Every moment of every day challenges our faith. Whether we realize it or not. So Jesus says it's necessary that temptation would come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. It's true. Life is and will be full of temptation to doubt God, to disobey Him, to disbelieve His Word. But woe to the one who takes part in that tempting. You see, just because life is broken, an unfulfilling one, doesn't mean that any one of us has the right to disobey Him. Even though the system has failed, it will not excuse our culpability in tempting people. Think with me for a moment about a very practical example. Have you heard about this movement that's been gaining a lot of steam in the last two years? If, if you are in the medical field or uh, uh, related to it, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Now it goes under the phrase, physician aid in dying. You might say it's the, the right to die or dying with dignity. It's really just a new euphemism for what we used to call euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, but, but we can't use that language anymore. That's too harsh. Shouldn't everyone have a right to die with dignity? Well, the worst and last enemy for any one of us in this life is death itself. But everyone dies. So what's the point? Why squabble over this debate? Let's say, for instance, in that movement that someone develops terminal cancer and is given two weeks to live. Instead of waiting for the inevitable, as if death is not inevitable for all of us anyway, the patient elects to take his or her own life with the doctor's lethal aid. 
Let's stop and really think carefully about what is going on. First, I think there is an implicit denial of death as an enemy of life. As if determining the time of death will make it any less painful for our loved ones who survive us. As if befriending an enemy will give us the victory in the war. Or second, a closer look at this sin shows us that it's a desperate attempt for control. You know, our pride tells us that we can live with anything, even death, as long as we can control it. As long as we can manage it. You know, this is, at the end of the day, just the Garden of Eden all over again. It's as if Satan is saying to our culture, did God really say that you would die? No, no, no. You'll, you'll be like Him, Eve. He's just a mean bully anyway. He doesn't want you to be like Him. Oh, you're dying. Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Well, there's nothing then that I can do for you. It's the lie of Satan, the temptation of our sinful flesh over and against the Word of God. By the way, in case you're wondering, the states of Washington and Oregon, California, Colorado, Montana, Vermont, the District of Columbia, all maintain this as a legal practice. And 25 other states will be considering it this year in their legislature. So what's our response then to sin? How do we practically deal with temptation? Thankfully, this is where our text turns to next. What do we do when we're tempted to disobey or disbelieve God's Word? Jesus teaches us, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the eternal hell of fire. Now let's all stop for a moment. Think very carefully. Scripture is not teaching us, Jesus does not mean that we're to espouse radical dismemberment. We know that cannot take care of our sin. We know this because Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus has already said, even in this Gospel back in Matthew 12, You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Or just a little bit later in Matthew 15, He writes, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, faultlessness, slander. These are what defile a person. What then can cure our sin? What can cure a child of its selfishness or an alcoholic of their dependency upon that substance? We've already seen in verse 7 that it's not the management or control over our temptations. There will always be temptations. Our sinful affections are so shifting and changing, always seeking new and insidious ways to enslave us under our own tyranny. If we were even to conquer one of our members and perfectly subdue it and submit it to Christ, our sin nature would immediately go after another part of us. 
We cannot manage our sin. We cannot control it. So God says we must die to it. I think the practical translation for us, again, is not radical dismemberment of our physical bodies. But it's this, if you, for instance, struggle with lustful thoughts or looking at pornography, then take away the source. Put filters on your phone or your computer. Remove yourselves from the internet. It would be better than burning in hell. If you struggle with gossip or with negative talk, remove yourselves from those people that tempt you to talk about people behind their back. If you're tempted to constantly make excuses or to place blame on someone else, surround yourselves with someone who is willing to speak tough love to you. But... Notice what all of these verses assume already to be true. It's the reason why I labored through those few verses connecting it to our passage. Because Jesus is talking to His disciples. He's talking to those little ones. God's children who believe in Him and are tempted. It assumes, therefore, that we are already in a relationship with Christ, so we must stop and ask the question, each one of us in our heart here and now, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the sufficiency of the cross? That it's not a possible washing clean, but that He has made you clean. That the Lord of glory has declared you righteous because of Jesus. We must ask that question first. Because this passage assumes eternity. It already has life after death in mind. Otherwise, no one would be willing to radically die to parts of their life. You see, the problem, for instance, with the right to die movement is that it settles. It sets the bar too low. It assumes that if death is inevitable, then the best one could hope for is to die peacefully. You know, that's what euthanasia stands for. It's a fancy Greek word that means good death or easy death. Beloved, there is no such thing. Death is the ultimate enemy, the ugly mar on our existence. The thing that thumbs its nose at God in Christ. Furthermore, it teaches us that only a Christian can die in peace. Everyone else, our passage maintains, will die forever, continually being given over to eternal torment. Particularly those that maintain that death is a good thing. It is most certainly not. Death is the just payment for our sins. It's precisely what Paul teaches in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But oh, brothers and sisters, 
But oh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must, we must look beyond this life. In order to live faithfully, in order to do what the Lord requires, in order to obey the impossible things that Jesus lays out in this passage, we must have an eye to glory. I'll end with this. You know, at a time when the Reformation was getting underway, a lot of Puritans writing in that time as Protestants wrestled back and forth with Catholics and the Reformation began to more fully articulate what it means to be justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We have a man like Richard Sibbs who writes to us, struggling, wrestling through how to live faithfully in this life. Listen to what he writes. There may be many duties and dispositions that God requires which we cannot be in without assurance of salvation on good grounds. What is that? God bids us be thankful in all things. How can I know that unless I know God is mine and Christ is mine? God enjoineth us to rejoice. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, Paul says in Philippians 4.4. Can a man rejoice that his name is written in heaven and not know his name is written there? Alas, how can I perform cheerful service to God when I doubt whether He be my God and Father or not? God requires a disposition in us that we should be full of encouragement and strong in the Lord that we should be courageous for His cause and withstanding His enemies and our enemies. How can there be courage in resisting our corruptions, Satan's temptation? How can there be courage in suffering persecution and crosses in the world if there be not some particular interest we have in Christ and in God? Do you hear that wrestling? How could we possibly bear up under this fallen age unless we know that we are secure in Christ? I point you back, though we haven't seen it in this service, what we've beheld today in God's splendid goodness, the grace unto His people in baptism. Baptism does not save us automatically. Baptism is the promise of God for all who are in Christ. That if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are as good as clean. I don't know exactly how Jamie and Tiffany will handle Caleb over the next few days, but I guarantee that that little bit of water Barry sprinkled upon his head will not suffice to be a bath for the rest of his life. He will again be dirty and need physical washing. But it represents that in Christ there is a washing once for all for our sin. That all the promises of God are yes and amen. 
that nothing in all the world can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even ourselves. Not even if, she, if we should be called to die to certain parts of our lives, to forsake things that we think we need. If we have eternity in mind and we know whose we are and where we will be, that's the only way any of us bears up in this life. The only way any of us could ever hope to obey what Christ commands in these verses the only way any of us could ever hope to do what the Lord requires, that we be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Do you find Him to be your sustenance and your stay, your guide and your friend, so that you do not look at death and say, I need to figure out when I'm going to die and control that. But you would say, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And whoever lives and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, though he die, yet shall he live. That is the gospel for us this day and every day. Amen.